Inside the episode description of every episode, I will include a direct link to the opinion I'm reading. I do this because I don't include any citations when I'm reading an opinion. I find that it provides a much better listening experience. And now we'll hear the opinion of the court in West Virginia v. Environmental Protection Agency. Chief Justice Roberts delivered the opinion of the court. The Clean Air Act authorizes the Environmental Protection Agency to regulate power plants by setting a standard of performance for their emission of certain pollutants into the air. That standard may be different for new and existing plants, but in each case, it must reflect the best system of emission reduction that the agency has determined to be adequately demonstrated for the particular category. For existing plants, the states then implement that requirement by issuing rules restricting emissions from sources within their borders. Since passage of the Act 50 years ago, EPA has exercised this authority by setting performance standards based on measures that would reduce pollution by causing plants to operate more cleanly. In 2015, however, EPA issued a new rule concluding that the best system of emission reduction for existing coal-fired power plants included a requirement that such facilities reduce their own production of electricity or subsidize increased generation by natural gas, wind, or solar sources. The question before us is whether this broader conception of EPA's authority is within the power granted to it by the Clean Air Act. Part 1. Section A. The Clean Air Act establishes three main regulatory programs to control air pollution from stationary sources such as power plants. One program is the New Source Performance Standards Program of Section 111 at issue here. The other two are the National Ambient Air Quality Standards, NAAQS program, set out in Sections 108 through 110 of the Act, and the Hazardous Air Pollutants, HAP program, set out in Section 112, Section 7412. To understand the place and function of Section 111 in the statutory scheme, some background on the other two programs is in order. The NAAQS program addresses air pollutants that may reasonably be anticipated to endanger public health or welfare, and the presence of which in the ambient air results from numerous or diverse mobile or stationary sources. After identifying such pollutants, EPA establishes a NAAQS for each. The NAAQS represents the maximum airborne concentration of the pollutant that the public health can tolerate. EPA, though, does not choose which sources must reduce their pollution and by how much to meet the ambient pollution target. Instead, Section 110 of the Act leaves that task in the first instance to the states, requiring each to submit to EPA a plan designed to implement and maintain such standards within its boundaries. 
The second major program governing stationary sources is the HAP program. The HAP program primarily targets pollutants other than those already covered by an NAAQS that present a threat of adverse human health effects, including substances known or anticipated to be carcinogenic, mutagenic, teratogenic, neurotoxic, or otherwise acutely or chronically toxic. EPA's regulatory role with respect to these toxic pollutants is different in kind from its role in administering the NAAQS program. There, EPA is generally limited to determining the maximum safe amount of covered pollutants in the air. As to each hazardous pollutant, by contrast, the agency must promulgate emission standards for both new and existing major sources. Those standards must require the maximum degree of reduction in emissions that the EPA administrator, taking into consideration the cost of achieving such emission reduction and any non-air quality, health and environmental impacts and energy requirements, determines is achievable through application of measures, processes, methods, systems, or techniques of emission reduction. In other words, EPA must directly require all covered sources to reduce their emissions to a certain level, and it chooses that level by determining the maximum degree of reduction it considers achievable in practice by using the best existing technologies and methods. Thus, in the parlance of environmental law, Section 112 directs the agency to impose technology-based standards for hazardous emissions. This sort of technology-based approach focuses upon the control technologies that are available to industrial entities and requires the agency to ensure that regulated firms adopt the appropriate cleanup technology. The third air pollution control scheme is the New Source Performance Standards Program of Section 111. That section directs EPA to list categories of stationary sources that it determines cause or contribute significantly to air pollution which may reasonably be anticipated to endanger public health or welfare. Under Section 111B, the agency must then promulgate for each category federal standards of performance for new sources. A standard of performance is one that, quote, reflects the degree of emission limitation achievable through the application of the best system of emission reduction, which the EPA administrator determines has been adequately demonstrated, unquote. Thus, the statute directs EPA to 1. Determine, taking into account various factors, the best system of emission reduction which has been adequately demonstrated. 2. Ascertain the degree of emission limitation achievable through the application of that system. And 3. Impose an emissions limit on new stationary sources that reflects that amount. 
Generally speaking, a source may achieve that emissions cap any way it chooses. The key is that its pollution be no more than the amount achievable through the application of the best system of emission reduction, adequately demonstrated. EPA undertakes this analysis on a pollutant-by-pollutant basis, establishing different standards of performance with respect to different pollutants emitted from the same source category. Under Section 111D, once EPA has set new source standards addressing emissions of a particular pollutant under Section 111B, it must then address emissions of that same pollutant by existing sources, but only if they are not already regulated under the NAAQS or HAP programs. Existing power plants, for example, emit many pollutants covered by a NAAQS or HAP standard. Section 111D thus operates as a gap filler, empowering EPA to regulate harmful emissions not already controlled under the agency's other authorities. Although the states set the actual rules governing existing power plants, EPA itself still retains the primary regulatory role in Section 111D. The agency, not the states, decides the amount of pollution reduction that must ultimately be achieved. It does so by again determining, as when setting the new source rules, the best system of emission reduction that has been adequately demonstrated for existing covered facilities. The states then submit plans containing the emissions restrictions that they intend to adopt and enforce in order not to exceed the permissible level of pollution established by the EPA. Reflecting the ancillary nature of Section 111D, EPA has used it only a handful of times since the enactment of the statute in 1970. For instance, the agency has established emissions limits on acid mist from sulfuric acid production, sulfide gases released by craft pulp mills, and emissions of various harmful gases from municipal landfills. It was thus only a slight overstatement for one of the architects of the 1990 amendments to the Clean Air Act to refer to Section 111D as an obscure never used section of the law. Section B. Things changed in October 2015 when the EPA promulgated two rules addressing carbon dioxide pollution from power plants, one for new plants under Section 111B, the other for existing plants under Section 111D. Both were premised on the agency's earlier finding that carbon dioxide is an air pollutant that may reasonably be anticipated to endanger public health or welfare by causing climate change. Carbon dioxide is not subject to a NAAQS and has not been listed as a toxic pollutant. The first rule announced by EPA established federal carbon emissions limits for new power plants of two varieties. Fossil fuel-fired electric steam-generating units, mostly coal-fired, 
and natural gas-fired stationary combustion turbines. Following the statutory process set out above, the agency determined the BSER for the two categories of sources. For steam-generating units, for instance, EPA determined that the BSER was a combination of high-efficiency production processes and carbon capture technology. EPA then set the emissions limit based on the amount of carbon dioxide that a plant would emit with these technologies in place. The second rule was triggered by the first, because EPA was now regulating carbon dioxide from new coal and gas plants. Section 111D required EPA to also address carbon emissions from existing coal and gas plants. It did so through what it called the Clean Power Plan Rule. In that rule, EPA established final emission guidelines for states to follow in developing plans to regulate existing power plants within their borders. To arrive at the guideline limits, EPA did the same thing it does when imposing federal regulations on new sources. It identified the BSER. The BSER that the agency selected for existing coal-fired power plants, however, was quite different from the BSER it had chosen for new sources. The BSER for existing plants included three types of measures, which the agency called building blocks. The first building block was heat rate improvements at coal-fired plants. Essentially, practices such plants could undertake to burn coal more efficiently. But such improvements, EPA stated, would lead to only small emissions reductions because coal-fired power plants were already operating near optimum efficiency. On the agency's view, much larger emissions reductions were needed from coal-fired plants to address climate change. So the agency included two additional building blocks in its BSER, both of which involve what it called generation shifting from higher emitting to lower emitting producers of electricity. Building block two was a shift in electricity production from existing coal-fired power plants to natural gas-fired plants. Because natural gas plants produce typically less than half as much carbon dioxide per unit of electricity created as coal-fired plants, the agency explained, this generation shift would reduce CO2 emissions. Building Block 3 worked the same way, except that the shift was from both coal and gas-fired plants to new low or zero-carbon generating capacity, mainly wind and solar. Most of the CO2 controls in the rule came from the application of the building blocks 2 and 3. The agency identified three ways in which a regulated plant operator could implement a shift in generation to cleaner sources. First, an operator could simply reduce the regulated plant's own production of electricity. Second, it could build a new natural gas plant, wind farm, or solar installation, or 
invest in someone else's existing facility and then increase generation there. Finally, operators could purchase emissions allowances or credits as part of a cap-and-trade regime. Under such a scheme, sources that achieve a reduction in their emissions can sell a credit representing the value of that reduction to others who are able to count it toward their applicable emissions caps. EPA explained that taking any of these steps would implement a sector-wide shift in electricity production from coal to natural gas and renewables. Given the integrated nature of the power grid, adding electricity to the grid from one generator will result in the instantaneous reduction in generation from other generators, and reductions in generation from one generator lead to the instantaneous increase in generation by others. So, coal plants, whether by reducing their own production, subsidizing an increase in production by cleaner sources, or both, would cause a shift toward wind, solar, and natural gas. Having decided that the best system of emission reduction adequately demonstrated was one that would reduce carbon pollution mostly by moving production to cleaner sources, EPA then set about determining the degree of emission limitation achievable through the application of that system. The agency recognized that, given the nature of generation shifting, it could choose from a wide range of potential stringencies for the BSER. Put differently, in translating the BSER into an operational emissions limit, EPA could choose whether to require anything from a little generation shifting to a great deal. The agency settled on what it regarded as a reasonable amount of shift, which it based on modeling of how much more electricity both natural gas and renewable sources could supply without causing undue cost increases or reducing the overall power supply. Based on these changes, EPA projected that by 2030, it would be feasible to have coal provide 27% of national electricity generation, down from 38% in 2014. From these significant projected reductions in generation, EPA developed a series of complex equations to determine the emissions performance rates that states would be required to implement. The calculations resulted in numerical emission ceilings so strict that no existing coal plant would have been able to achieve them without engaging in one of the three means of shifting generation described above. Indeed, the emissions limit the clean power plan established for existing power plants was actually stricter than the cap imposed by the simultaneously published standards for new plants. The point, after all, was to compel the transfer of power generating capacity from existing sources to wind and solar. The White House stated that the clean power plan would drive an aggressive transformation in the domestic energy industry. EPA's own modeling concluded that the rule would entail billions of dollars in compliance costs to be paid in the form of higher energy prices, require the retirement of dozens of coal-fired plants, and eliminate tens of thousands of jobs across various sectors. 
The Energy Information Administration reached similar conclusions, projecting that the rule would cause retail electricity prices to remain persistently 10% higher in many states and would reduce GDP by at least a trillion $2,009 by 2040. These projections were never tested because the Clean Power Plan never went into effect. The same day that the EPA promulgated the rule, dozens of parties, including 27 states, petitioned for review in the D.C. Circuit. After that court declined to enter a stay of the rule, the challengers sought the same relief from this court. We granted a stay, preventing the rule from taking effect. The Court of Appeals later heard argument on the merits en banc, But before it could issue a decision, there was a change in presidential administrations. The new administration requested that the litigation be held in abeyance so that the EPA could reconsider the Clean Power Plan. The D.C. Circuit obliged and later dismissed the petitions for review as moot. EPA eventually repealed the rule in 2019, concluding that the Clean Power Plan had been in excess of its statutory authority under Section 111D. Specifically, the agency concluded that generation shifting should not have been considered as part of the BSER. The agency interpreted Section 111 as limiting the BSER to those systems that can be put into operation at a building, structure, facility, or installation, such as add-on controls and inherently lower-emitting processes, practices, and designs. It then explained that the Clean Power Plan, rather than setting the standard based on the application of equipment and practices at the level of an individual facility, had instead based it on a shift in the energy generation mix at the grid level. Not the sort of measure that has a potential for application to an individual source. The agency determined that the interpretive question raised by the Clean Power Plan, i.e., whether a system of emission reduction can consist of generation-shifting measures, fell under the major question doctrine. Under that doctrine, EPA explained Courts expect Congress to speak clearly if it wishes to assign an agency decisions of vast economic and political significance. The agency concluded that the Clean Power Plan was such a decision for a number of reasons. Its generation-shifting scheme was projected to have billions of dollars of impact. No Section 111 rule of the scores issued had ever been based on generation shifting, and that novel reading of the statute would empower EPA to order the wholesale restructuring of any industrial sector based only on its discretionary assessment of such factors as cost and feasibility. EPA argued that under the major questions doctrine, a clear statement was necessary to conclude that Congress intended to delegate authority of this breadth to regulate a fundamental sector of the economy. Section D. A number of states and private parties immediately filed petitions for review in the D.C. Circuit, 
challenging EPA's repeal of the Clean Power Plan and its enactment of the replacement ACE rule. It found none. Indeed, it concluded, given the text and structure of the statute, Congress has directly spoken to this precise question and precluded the use of measures such as generation shifting. In the same rulemaking, the agency replaced the Clean Power Plan by promulgating a different Section 111D regulation known as the Affordable Clean Energy Rule, ACE. Based on its view of what measures may permissibly make up the BSER, EPA determined that the best system would be akin to Building Block 1 of the Clean Power Plan, a combination of equipment upgrades and operating practices that would improve facilities' heat rates. The ACE rule determined that the application of its BSER measures would result in only small reductions in carbon dioxide emissions. Other states and private entities, including petitioners here in West Virginia, North Dakota, Westmoreland Mining Holdings, LLC, and the North American Coal Corporation, NACC, intervened to defend both actions. The Court of Appeals consolidated all 12 petitions for review into one case. It then held that EPA's repeal of the Clean Power Plan rested critically on a mistaken reading of the Clean Air Act, namely that generation shifting cannot be a system of emission reduction under Section 111. To the contrary, the court concluded, the statute could reasonably be read to encompass generation shifting. As part of that analysis, the Court of Appeals concluded that the major questions doctrine did not apply and thus rejected the need for a clear statement of congressional intent to delegate such power to EPA. Having found that EPA misunderstood the scope of its authority under the Clean Air Act, the court vacated the agency's repeal of the Clean Power Plan and remanded to the agency for further consideration. It also vacated and remanded the replacement rule, the ACE rule, for the same reason. The court's decision, handed down January 19, 2021, was quickly followed by another change in presidential administrations. One month later, EPA moved the Court of Appeals to partially stay the issuance of its mandate as it pertained to the Clean Power Plan. The agency did so to ensure that the Clean Power Plan would not immediately go back into effect. EPA believed that such a result would not make sense while it was in the process of considering whether to promulgate a new Section 111D rule. No party opposed the motion, and the court accordingly stayed its vacator of the agency's repeal of the Clean Power Plan. Westmoreland, N.A.C.C., and the states defending the repeal of the Clean Power Plan all filed petitions for certiorari. We granted the petitions and consolidated the cases. We first consider the government's contention that no petitioner has Article Three standing to seek our review. Although most disputes over standing concern whether a plaintiff has satisfied the requirement when filing suit, Article Three demands that an actual controversy persist throughout all stages of litigation. 
The requirement of standing must be met by persons seeking appellate review, just as it must be met by persons appearing in courts of first instance. In considering a litigant's standing to appeal, the question is whether it has experienced an injury fairly traceable to the judgment below. If so, and a favorable ruling from the appellate court would redress that injury, then the appellant has a cognizable Article III stake. Here, it is apparent that at least one group of petitioners, the state petitioners, are injured by the Court of Appeals' judgment. That judgment vacated the ACE rule and its embedded repeal of the Clean Power Plan and accordingly purports to bring the Clean Power Plan back into legal effect. Thus, to the extent the Clean Power Plan harms the states, the D.C. Circuit's judgment inflicts the same injury, and there can be little question that the rule does injure the states, since they are the object of its requirement that they more stringently regulate power plant emissions within their borders. The government counters that agency and judicial actions subsequent to the court's entry of judgment have eliminated any possibility of injury. First, after the decision, EPA informed the Court of Appeals that it does not intend to enforce the Clean Power Plan because it has decided to promulgate a new Section 111D rule. Second, on EPA's request, the lower court stayed the part of its judgment that vacated the repeal pending that new rulemaking. These circumstances, says the government, have mooted the prior dispute as to the CPP repeal rule's legality. That Freudian slip, however, reveals the basic flaw in the government's argument. It is the doctrine of mootness, not standing, that addresses whether an intervening circumstance has deprived the plaintiff of a personal stake in the outcome of the lawsuit. The distinction matters because the government, not petitioners, bears the burden to establish that a once-live case has become moot. That burden is heavy where, as here, the only conceivable basis for a finding of mootness in the case is the respondent's voluntary conduct. Although the government briefly argues that the lower court's stay of its mandate extinguished the controversy, it cites no authority for that proposition, and it does not make sense. Lower courts frequently stay their mandates when notified that the losing party intends to seek our certiorari review. So the government's mootness argument boils down to its representation that EPA has no intention of enforcing the Clean Power Plan prior to promulgating a new Section 111D rule. But voluntary cessation does not moot a case unless it is absolutely clear that the allegedly wrongful behavior could not reasonably be expected to recur. Here, the government nowhere suggests that if this litigation is resolved in its favor, it will not reimpose emissions limits predicated on generation shifting. Indeed, it vigorously defends the legality of such an approach. We do not dismiss a case as moot in such circumstances. The case thus remains justiciable, and we may turn to the merits. In devising emissions limits for power plants, EPA first determines the best system of emission reduction that taking into account cost, health, and other factors, 
it finds, has been adequately demonstrated. The agency then quantifies the degree of emission limitation achievable if that best system were applied to the covered source. The BSER, therefore, is the central determination that the EPA must make in formulating its emission guidelines under Section 111. The issue here is whether restructuring the nation's overall mix of electricity generation to transition from 38% coal to 27% coal by 2030 can be the best system of emissions reduction within the meaning of Section 111. It is a fundamental canon of statutory construction that the words of a statute must be read in their context and with a view to their place in the overall statutory scheme. Where the statute at issue is one that confers authority upon an administrative agency, that inquiry must be shaped, at least in some measure, by the nature of the question presented, whether Congress in fact meant to confer the power the agency has asserted. In the ordinary case, that context has no great effect on the appropriate analysis. Nonetheless, our precedent teaches that there are extraordinary cases that call for a different approach, cases in which the history and the breadth of the authority that the agency has asserted and the economic and political significance of that assertion provide a reason to hesitate before concluding that Congress meant to confer such an authority. Such cases have arisen from all corners of the administrative state. In Brown v. Williamson, for instance, the Food and Drug Administration claimed that its authority over drugs and devices included the power to regulate and even ban tobacco products. We rejected that expansive construction of the statute, concluding that Congress could not have intended to delegate such a sweeping and consequential authority in so cryptic a fashion. In Alabama Association of Realtors v. Department of Health and Human Services, we concluded that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention could not, under its authority to adopt measures necessary to prevent the spread of disease, institute a nationwide eviction moratorium in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. We found the statute's language a wafer-thin reed on which to rest such a measure, Given the sheer scope of the CDC's claimed authority, its unprecedented nature, and the fact that Congress had failed to extend the moratorium after previously having done so. Our decision in Utility Air addressed another question regarding EPA's authority, namely whether EPA could construe the term air pollutant in a specific provision of the Clean Air Act to cover greenhouse gases. Despite its textual plausibility, we noted that the agency's interpretation would have given it permitting authority over millions of small sources, such as hotels and office buildings, that had never before been subject to such requirements. We declined to uphold EPA's claim of unheralded regulatory power over a significant portion of the American economy. In Gonzales v. Oregon, we confronted the Attorney General's assertion that he could rescind the license of any physician who prescribed a controlled substance for assisted suicide, even in a state where such action was legal. The Attorney General argued that this came within his statutory power to revoke licenses where he found them inconsistent with the public interest. 
We considered the idea that Congress gave him such broad and unusual authority through an implicit delegation not sustainable. Similar considerations informed our recent decision in validating the Occupational Safety and Health Administration's mandate that 84 million Americans either obtain a COVID-19 vaccine or undergo weekly medical testing at their own expense. We found it telling that OSHA, in its half-century of existence, had never relied on its authority to regulate occupational hazards to impose such a remarkable measure. All of these regulatory assertions had a colorable textual basis, and yet in each case, given the various circumstances, common sense as to the manner in which Congress would have been likely to delegate such power to the agency at issue, made it very unlikely that Congress had actually done so. Extraordinary grants of regulatory authority are rarely accomplished through modest words, vague terms, or subtle devices. Nor does Congress typically use oblique or elliptical language to empower an agency to make a radical or fundamental change to a statutory scheme. Agencies have only those powers given to them by Congress, and enabling legislation is generally not an open book to which the agency may add pages and change the plot line. We presume that Congress intends to make major policy decisions itself, not leave those decisions to agencies. Thus, in certain extraordinary cases, both separation of powers principles and a practical understanding of legislative intent make us reluctant to read into ambiguous statutory text the delegation claimed to be lurking there. To convince us otherwise, something more than a merely plausible textual basis for the agency action is necessary. The agency instead must point to clear congressional authorization for the power it claims. The dissent criticizes us for announcing the arrival of this major questions doctrine, and it argues that each of the decisions just cited simply followed our ordinary method of normal statutory interpretation. But in what the dissent calls the key case in this area, Brown and Williamson, the court could not have been clearer. In extraordinary cases, there may be reason to hesitate before accepting a reading of a statute that would, under more ordinary circumstances, be upheld. Or, as we put it more recently, we typically greet assertions of extravagant statutory power over the national economy with skepticism. The dissent attempts to fit the analysis in these cases within routine statutory interpretation, but the bottom line, a requirement of clear congressional authorization, confirms that the approach under the major questions doctrine is distinct. As for the major questions doctrine label, it took hold because it refers to an identifiable body of law that has developed over a series of significant cases addressing a particular and recurring problem, agencies asserting highly consequential power beyond what Congress could reasonably be understood to have granted. Scholars and jurists have recognized the common threads between those decisions. So have we. Under our precedents, this is a major questions case. 
in arguing that Section 111D empowers it to substantially restructure the American energy market, EPA claimed to discover in a long extant statute an unheralded power representing a transformative expansion in its regulatory authority. It located that newfound power in the vague language of an ancillary provision of the Act, one that was designed to function as a gap filler and had rarely been used in the preceding decades. And the agency's discovery allowed it to adopt a regulatory program that Congress had conspicuously and repeatedly declined to enact itself. Given these circumstances, there is every reason to hesitate before concluding that Congress meant to confer on EPA the authority it claims under Section 111D. Prior to 2015, EPA had always set emissions limits under Section 111 based on the application of measures that would reduce pollution by causing the regulated source to operate more cleanly. It had never devised a cap by looking to a system that would reduce pollution simply by shifting polluting activity from dirtier to cleaner sources. And, as Justice Frankfurter has noted, just as established practice may shed light on the extent of power conveyed by general statutory language, so the want of assertion of power by those who presumably would be alert to exercise it is equally significant in determining whether such power was actually conferred. The government quibbles with this description of the history of Section 111D, pointing to one rule that it says relied on a cap-and-trade mechanism to reduce emissions. The legality of that choice was controversial at the time and was never addressed by a court. Even assuming the rule was valid, though, it still does not help the government. In that regulation, EPA set the actual emission cap, i.e. the limit on emissions that sources would be required to meet, based on the level of mercury emissions reductions that would be achievable by the use of technologies that could be installed and operational on a nationwide basis in the relevant time frame, namely wet scrubbers. In other words, EPA set the cap based on the application of particular controls and regulated sources could have complied by installing them. By contrast and by design, there is no control a coal plant operator can deploy to attain the emissions limits established by the clean power plan. The mercury rule, therefore, is no precedent for the clean power plan. To the contrary, it was one more entry in an unbroken list of prior Section 111 rules that devised the enforceable emissions limit by determining the best control mechanisms available for the source. This consistent understanding of the systems of emission reduction tracked the seemingly universal view, as stated by EPA in its inaugural Section 111D rulemaking, that Congress intended a technology-based approach to regulation in that section. A technology-based standard, recall, is one that focuses on improving the emissions performance of individual sources. EPA commonly referred to the level of control required as a best demonstrated technology, BDT, standard, and consistently applied it as such. 
Indeed, EPA nodded to this history in the Clean Power Plan itself, describing the sort of systems of emissions reduction it had always before selected, efficiency improvements, fuel switching, and add-on controls as more traditional air pollution control measures. The agency noted that it had considered such measures as potential systems of emission reduction for carbon dioxide, including a measure it ultimately adopted as a component of the BSER, namely heat rate improvements. But the agency explained in order to control CO2 from affected plants at levels necessary to mitigate the dangers presented by climate change, it could not base the emissions limit on measures that improve efficiency at the power plants. The quantity of emissions reductions resulting from the application of these measures would have been too small, instead, to attain the necessary critical CO2 reductions EPA adopted what it called a broader, forward-thinking approach to the design of Section 111 regulations. Rather than focus on improving the performance of individual sources, it would improve the overall power system by lowering the carbon intensity of power generation, and it would do that by forcing a shift throughout the power grid from one type of energy source to another, In the words of the then-EPA administrator, the rule was not about pollution control so much as it was an investment opportunity for states, especially investments in renewables and clean energy. This view of EPA's authority was not only unprecedented, it also affected a fundamental revision of the statute, changing it from one sort of scheme of regulation into an entirely different kind. Under the agency's prior view of Section 111, its role was limited to ensuring the efficient pollution performance of each individual regulated source. Under that paradigm, if a source was already operating at that level, there was nothing more for EPA to do. Under its newly discovered authority, however, EPA can demand much greater reductions in emissions based on a very different kind of policy judgment, that it would be best if coal made up a much smaller share of national electricity generation. And on this view of EPA's authority, it could go further, perhaps forcing coal plants to shift away virtually all of their generation, i.e. to cease making power altogether. The government attempts to downplay the magnitude of this unprecedented power over American industry. The amount of generation shifting ordered, it argues, must be adequately demonstrated and best in light of the statutory factors of cost, non-air quality, health and environmental impact, and energy requirements. EPA, therefore, must limit the magnitude of generation shift it demands to a level that will not be exorbitantly costly or threaten the reliability of the grid. But this argument does not so much limit the breadth of the government's claimed authority as reveal it. On EPA's view of Section 111D, Congress implicitly tasked it, and it alone, with balancing the many vital considerations of national policy implicated in deciding how Americans will get their energy. EPA decides, for instance, 
how much of a switch from coal to natural gas is practically feasible by 2020, 2025, and 2030 before the grid collapses, and how high energy prices can go as a result before they become unreasonably exorbitant. There is little reason to think Congress assigned such decisions to the agency. For one thing, as EPA itself admitted when requesting special funding, understanding and protecting system-wide trends in areas such as electricity transmission, distribution, and storage requires technical and policy expertise not traditionally needed in EPA regulatory development. When an agency has no comparative expertise in making certain policy judgments, we have said Congress presumably would not task it with doing so. We also find it highly unlikely that Congress would leave to agency discretion the decision of how much coal-based generation there should be over the coming decades. The basic and consequential trade-offs involved in such a choice are ones that Congress would likely have intended for itself. Congress certainly has not conferred a like authority upon EPA anywhere else in the Clean Air Act. The last place one would expect to find it is in the previously little-used backwater of Section 111D. The dissent contends that there is nothing surprising about EPA dictating the optimal mix of energy sources nationwide, since that sort of mandate will reduce air pollution from power plants, which is EPA's bread and butter. But that does not follow. Forbidding evictions may slow the spread of disease, but the CDC's ordering such a measure certainly raises an eyebrow. We would not expect the Department of Homeland Security to make a trade or foreign policy, even though doing so could decrease illegal immigration. And no one would consider generation shifting a tool in OSHA's toolbox even though reducing generation at coal plants would reduce workplace illness and injury from coal dust. The dissent also cites our decision in American Electrical Power Company v. Connecticut. The question there, however, was whether Congress wanted district court judges to decide, under written federal nuisance law, whether and how to regulate carbon dioxide emissions from power plants. We answered no, given the existence of Section 111D, but we said nothing about the ways in which Congress intended EPA to exercise its power under that provision, and it is doubtful we had in mind that it could claim the authority to require a large shift from coal to natural gas, wind, and solar. After all, EPA had never regulated in that manner despite having issued many prior rules governing power plants under Section 111. Finally, we cannot ignore that the regulatory writ, EPA, newly uncovered, conveniently enabled it to enact a program that, long after the dangers posed by greenhouse gas emissions had become well known, Congress considered and rejected multiple times. At bottom, the Clean Power Plan essentially adopted a cap-and-trade scheme, or set of state cap-and-trade schemes for carbon. Congress, however, has consistently rejected proposals to amend the Clean Air Act to create such a program. It has also declined to enact similar measures such as carbon tax, 
The importance of the issue, along with the fact that the same basic scheme EPA adopted has been the subject of an earnest and profound debate across the country, makes the oblique form of the claimed delegation all the more suspect. Given these circumstances, our precedent counsels skepticism toward EPA's claim that Section 111 empowers it to devise carbon emissions caps based on a generation-shifting approach. To overcome that skepticism, the government must, under the Major Questions Doctrine, point to clear congressional authorization to regulate in that manner. All the government can offer, however, is the agency's authority to establish emissions caps at a level reflecting the application of the best system of emission reduction, adequately demonstrated. As a matter of definitional possibilities, generation shifting can be described as a system, an aggregation or assemblage of objects united by some form of regular interaction, capable of reducing emissions. But of course, Almost anything could constitute such a system. Shorn of all context, the word is an empty vessel. Such a vague statutory grant is not close to the sort of clear authorization required by our precedents. The government, echoed by the other respondents, looks to other provisions of the Clean Air Act for support. It points out that the Act elsewhere uses the word system or similar words to describe cap and trade schemes or other sector-wide mechanisms for reducing pollution. The acid rain program set out in Title IV of the Act establishes a cap and trade scheme for reducing sulfur dioxide emissions, which the statute refers to as an emission allocation and transfer system and Section 110 of the NAAQS program specifies that marketable permits and auctions of emissions rights qualify as control measures, means, or techniques that states may adopt in their state implementation plans in order to meet the applicable requirements of a NAAQS. If the word system or similar words like technique or means can encompass cap and trade, the government maintains, why not in Section 111? But just because a cap and trade system can be used to reduce emissions does not mean that it is the kind of system of emissions reduction referred to in Section 111. Indeed, the government's examples demonstrate why it is not. First, unlike Section 111, the acid rain and NAAQS programs contemplate trading systems as a means of complying with an already established emissions limit set either directly by Congress, as with acid rain, or by reference to the safe concentration of the pollutant in the ambient air, as with the NAAQS. In Section 111, by contrast, it is EPA's job to come up with the cap itself, the numerical limit on emissions that states must apply to each source. We doubt that Congress directed the agency to set an emissions cap at the level which reflects the degree of emission limitation achievable through the application of a cap-and-trade system, for that degree is indeterminate. It is one thing for Congress to authorize regulated sources to use trading to comply with a preset cap, 
or a cap that must be based on some scientific objective criterion, such as the NAAQS. It is quite another to simply authorize EPA to set the cap itself wherever the agency sees fit. Second, Congress added the above authorizations for the use of emissions trading programs in 1990, simultaneous with amending Section 111 to its present form. At the time, cap-and-trade was a novel and highly touted concept. The Acid Rain Program was the nation's first-ever emissions trading program. And Congress went out of its way to amend the NAAQS statute to make absolutely clear that the measures, means, and techniques states could use to meet the NAAQS included cap-and-trade. Yet, not a peep was heard from Congress about the possibility that a trading regime could be installed under Section 111. Finally, the government notes that other parts of the Clean Air Act, past and present, have explicitly limited the permissible components of a particular system of emission reduction in some regard. For instance, a separate section of the statute empowers EPA to require the degree of reduction achievable through the retrofit application of the best system of continuous emission reduction. The comparatively unadorned use of the phrase best system of emission reduction in Section 111 the government urges suggests a conscious congressional choice not to limit the measures that may constitute the BSER to those applicable at or to an individual source. These arguments, however, concern an interpretive question that is not at issue. We have no occasion to decide whether the statutory phrase system of emission reduction refers exclusively to measures that improve the pollution performance of individual sources, such that all other actions are ineligible to qualify as the BSER. To be sure, it is pertinent to our analysis that EPA has acted consistent with such a limitation for the first four decades of the statute's existence. But the only interpretive question before us, and the only one we answer, is more narrow whether the best system of emission reduction identified by EPA in the Clean Power Plan was within the authority granted to the agency in Section 111D of the Clean Air Act. For the reasons given, the answer is no. Capping carbon dioxide emissions at a level that will force a nationwide transition away from the use of coal to generate electricity may be a sensible solution to the crisis of the day. But it is not plausible that Congress gave EPA the authority to adopt on its own such a regulatory scheme in Section 111D. A decision of such magnitude and consequence rests with Congress itself, or an agency acting pursuant to a clear delegation from that representative body. The judgment of the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit is reversed, and the cases are remanded for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. It is so ordered.